you can turn in your, your copy of God's Word to Psalm 139 and hold your place there and turn to Acts 6. We'll read first, as an act of worship, Acts chapter 6, verses 5 to the end, for reasons that will become more clear in, in the course of the sermon. This is God's holy word. Acts chapter 6, verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before the apostles. When they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and of them of Sicilia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Amen. And now Psalm 139, we'll read the first six verses, and this will be the text for our sermon. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. O Lord, thou hast searched me, And known me. Thou knowest my down sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. 
For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Amen. God's Word. I remember being a young boy, and uh, I don't know exactly how old I was, but I was preteen, and my father bought our family a computer and a subscription to AOL. And we dialed up, and I remember, you know, you, I guess it was the World Wide Web, but you would dial up to AOL's place, page, I guess. And you could look and see the news. It wasn't printed in our newspaper. It was on our computer screen. And, we, and I could see, I was into Larry Bird and Michael Jordan and the NBA basketball you know, stuff. And you could look at all the scores from the game the night before. And I'm like, oh, wow, you can like, know these things. You know? and, um, and of course... Now, we have this thing called Google, and you can pull up your phone, and you can type in, you know, Covenant Presbyterian Church, and there's actually like six or seven of them in the, you know, the three-hour radius or whatnot, and you could find out the fastest route to somewhere, or you can find out if a, if a restaurant's open, or what kind of restaurants, or, you know, you can Google Abraham Lincoln, and you can find out all the different things. Google has all this knowledge. It's all there. It's amazing. It's much easier to do a research paper. You don't have to go to a library and go through the books, and it's limited. It's, there's just so much knowledge on Google. And yet, Despite how powerful Google is, despite how useful it is, it's nothing compared to the knowledge of God. It's nothing. It has errors. It doesn't know the future, among many other things. And I want to bring to you a sermon from Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6, because this topic, um, we'll be looking somewhat topically at this, at this, is very useful, edifying, and encouraging. Our family has a very modest Bible memory uh, program or, or whatnot, and, and we've sung this portion of the scriptures in our family worship for the past several weeks, I guess months. And I've noticed that it's been very edifying to me, personally. And so that's why I'm bringing this to you, and I hope that you will have similar experience. So three points this morning. Exposition. The exposition exposition of these six verses here. Secondly, the doctrine. Uh, A few comments, a few words on, on 
on the doctrine it teaches us and, and, and honing that into our minds. And then third, the application or the, the uses of this doctrine. So first, four points of exposition. Four points of exposition. First, the observer of this knowledge. The observer of this knowledge. Well, is specifically David, but is a believer in the Lord, a believer in the covenant God, Jehovah. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. David was a Christian, if you will. He was a believer in, in the Lord. The phrase here, to the chief musician, helps us understand that, perhaps among other things, but helps us understand that this portion of Scripture was sung uh, in the temple. The Levites were in charge. There was a choir director um, there. A believer in the Lord. There's various marks of faith throughout this psalm, and I won't elaborate because I think you understand, but he addresses God reverently. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. He praises God in verses 14 and verses 17. He's upset in verses 20 through 21 when God's people and and others violate um, his law and speak against God. So these are all signs of faith. Secondly, the particulars of this knowledge, the particulars. Verse 2, thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. When I come and go, when I come and go, God knows. He knows, verse 3, Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all, of, all my ways. Perhaps a, a little bit better way of translating it. My path, in, in verse 3, thou compassest my path, my, my walking, my walking and my lying down. And the sense then becomes everything in between my coming and going. You know all of it. And in verse 3 it says, are acquainted with all, all my ways. You could say my roads. So I rise up, and then everything in between my rising up and my, and my, and my, um, my coming and going. You know all these things. Going back to verse 2. They'll understand my thought afar off. God knows our thoughts. We see this in the life of Christ. Mark 2, 5 through 8. He, he says that to, to someone that their sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are reasoning in their hearts. Children, that means they were thinking. They were not verbalizing it. And Christ looks at them and says, Why reasonest thou in your hearts? Ezekiel 11.5, And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said unto me, Speak, thus saith the Lord, thus have ye said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. Look at verse 4, another particular aspect of this knowledge. Verse 4, he knows our words, and of course it follows, doesn't it? 
from the fact that he knows our thoughts. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. We have a conversation with someone, perhaps we're in a bit of a debate, and there's, there's words going and arguments going and you're talking. And no, you did say that. I know you said that. No, I didn't say that. I said this. God knows all of our words. Verse 5, another, another particular. He knows your location. Let me develop this a little bit. Verse 5 says this, Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Now, there's certainly an image of protection here. But it's not chiefly intended to convey to us that God protects us. And the main reason for that is in verse 6, he goes back to knowledge. Okay, verses 1 through 6 is about the omniscience of God. The next section, we talk about the omnipresence of God and those things. Verse 5 is an is a image of knowing the location. Thou hast beset uh, me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. It's kind of like when Saul was recently converted and he goes to Damascus and the, the Jews there, they, they hemmed him in the city. They were looking for him. They were at the gates. Now, he was able to escape. They, they, they hemmed him in. Okay? We put our baby in our crib, partly for protection, but also because we know where they are, especially the ones that like to crawl around and eat everything on the floor. They're in the crib. I'm having a conversation with someone, and my son comes up to my side, and I lay my hand upon him. So I want to know where he's at, but I'm not going to look and pay too much attention to him. I'm talking to somebody. And that's the idea. That's chiefly the idea. He knows our location. And one other particular, his knowledge is personal. It's a personal knowledge. Verse 1, O Lord, thou hast searched me. Verse 2, thou knowest my down-sitting. And mine uprising, thou understandest my thought. Verse 3, thou compassest my path, and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. Verse 4. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Verse 5, thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. You can go on the Weather Channel, and you can say, well, the folks that are living on the east coast of the state of Florida, they're undergoing a hurricane. 
You can pray for them. You can know that. But God knows the people there by name. He knows that they are, you know, the Steve and the Jane and the baby individually. Well, the third point of exposition, the extent of this knowledge. Now, God's extent of this knowledge is comprehensive, right? It's perfect. And I'm, I'm bringing this exposition a little bit, you know, topically and by pieces. But notice verse 3. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. All my ways. Not just the path of the road of my life, which is on Sunday, or, or, or that, you know, that path I take when I go to school or I'm at work, but all, all my ways. Verse 4, for there is not a word. That's a, that's a way of describing that he knows all of our words. There's not a word on my tongue, but you, you know all of them. You know it all together. But thou, O Lord, knowest all of it. That's what it means. All together. And then there's one other, by way of exposition, in verse 5, he says, Thou hast beset me behind and before. Now this is a figure of speech. It's called a merism. A merism is a figure of speech in which a combination of two contrasting parts of the whole refer, refer to the whole. Two contrasting parts of the whole refer to the whole. So if you're going to say that you searched everywhere, you say, I searched high and low. So there's something God is saying in verse 5. You can't go anywhere without me knowing where you are. Well, fourthly, in the last point of exposition, is the response to this knowledge. In verse 6, there are a few other things I'll say by way of exposition in the next section, but... The last point of exposition is verse 4, and it's the response to this knowledge. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Here we have one, one response. The psalmist does not ask an unbelieving question. He doesn't scrutinize God. Well, God, if you know all things, then why have you allowed bad things? Why have you not acted? Why have you not intervened? That could be a response. It's a, it's a response of unbelief. It's a response of pride. Instead, this knowledge of God. The, the psalmist has an understanding of it. And he's brought low. He's brought low. He's humbled. He's humbled and he stands, as it were, back and he admires and he, he wonders and he marvels at God. Such knowledge 
is too wonderful for me. It's high. It's high. I cannot attain to it. And this is the root application, which I'll come back to near the end. All the uses of God's knowledge comes really down to this, to acknowledge the godness of God, the transcendence of God. There are incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes of God, and this is a helpful discussion to have at the moment. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, incommunicable attributes. And as being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Those are communicable attributes. Knowledge, okay, is communicable. And yet it involves, as it were, the fact that he's infinite in knowledge. And that blows our minds, if we're willing to consider it. It it, it should amaze us. And that's what we have here, a way of exposition. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot attain it. So this is the exposition, friends and brethren. But secondly, let's consider the doctrine of this passage of Scripture. And that is simply this. It is our duty to admire and marvel at the all-knowing God. It's our duty to admire and marvel at the all-knowing God. So let's consider this doctrine under, under, three, under three things here under doctrine, three, three additional points. First, let's consider, not because um, it's necessarily very difficult to understand or objected to by, 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 by many, but it's useful just to consider some scriptures that point to the same truth. We interpret scripture with scripture. I'll give you four and I'll just read them to you. 1 John 3.20 For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. John 21.17 It's a very interesting comment that Peter makes. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, Thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Perhaps my favorite one. Psalm 147.5 Great is our Lord, and of great power. His understanding is infinite. The last one, Isaiah 40.28 Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth fainteth not, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. There is no searching of his understanding. Well, the second point of doctrine here is, these, these last two points here under doctrine, before we come to application, is to deal with some objections. Um, one that a Christian who's sincerely a Christian and, and loves God might just object to in, 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 a, in a secondary, tertiary way, just out of confusion. 
And the next one is really an objection. So, for example, you might say to yourself, well, and you ought to, you ought to think deeply like this. Well, well, Reverend Ketchum, Jesus says in Matthew 7.23 that he doesn't know someone. If you recall that passage of Scripture. You know, folks who don't seek the way of salvation by the grace of God in Christ, they try to earn it, they do different things. Hey, have I not prophesied in your name and perform marvelous works in your, your name? And Jesus will say on the judgment day to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, it doesn't mean that he was ignorant of their existence. Okay, what it means is he, he was talking about... Um, a, a, Salvation is often referred to as in knowing God in a saving way, having affection for God, God having an affection by virtue of the mediation of Christ for them. That's what's being referred there to. We can speak about salvation as knowing Christ and Christ knowing us within grace. That's, that's all it is. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know them in their existence. Psalm 1.6, For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous. You see, it's not that he doesn't know the way of the unrighteous, but he's speaking affectionately. We need to, we need to know how the Bible speaks. Hebrews ten seventeen, and their sins and iniquities, will I remember no more. Okay, he's speaking to us in a human way, an anthropomorphism. Okay, you just need to know these things. This is how the Bible speaks. It helps us. It actually is very edifying and encouraging to us for for the Bible to say that God remembers our sins no more. It means we're not guilty in Christ. That's what it means. It's as if he didn't remember. You know, you pay a debt to someone, and you, have, you, know, you pay a debt, and they have a record of the debt, but it's no more. It's been paid for. That's, that's the idea. In Isaiah 5, 1 through 2, I'm going to read this, these two verses because I, I want you to get into the anthropomorphisms of the Bible. How God condescends to us in speech. Uh, an anthropomorphism is a condescension, right? He speaks in a human way, not to be taken bare literally. I was speaking to a doctor this past weekend, this weekend, and I'm not a doctor. And he was explaining something to me, and I was like, he's like, well, it's kind of like this. And he, he explained it in terms I could understand because I'm not smart like he is. Okay? Listen to this verse, Isaiah 5, 1 through 2. Now will I sing to my well-beloved... A song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof, keep listening, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes." There's an intimation there that God is hoping. God's the owner of the vineyard and all the, the whole parable, right? The whole story. And it says that God, God hoped, as if he you know, didn't know or something. But it's just intimating that you know, God's, God's desire for the people of Israel to bear fruit. And I'm touching a lot of ground there, perhaps. But it's one of many um, ways in which the Bible speaks in a, in, a, in a human way. We ought to understand it worthy of God. Uh, just another comment about this before I move on to my third point of doctrine. Psalm 139. 
has anthropomorphisms in it. Verse 1, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Friends, God has no need to search. He's trying to convey something to us. Sweetie, where did I put my wallet? Where did I put my keys? I'll go look for it. Verse 2. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. God's not afar off. You know, as if, as if you know, when someone's far away from us, maybe they're not as aware of what's going on in our life. He's saying that even then God knows. In verse 3, or verse 5, talks about a hand. Thou hast beset me behind him before and laid thine hand upon me. God doesn't have a hand. Okay, Christ, right, the God-man, the, the, the Son of God, became man. He has two hands. Children, Jesus has ten fingers. Okay, but God, properly speaking, is, does not have a hand. He's conveying something to us. Okay, so, third, third point under doctrine. And this is important. I've talked to people like this, church people, who later go and they drift away from the church. Perhaps you're like that now. You're doubting what you've been taught by your parents. You're wondering, is the Bible... You're you're asking, the Bible doesn't make sense. Here's the question. If God knows all things and he's good, then why does he allow evil things to happen? Okay, I would be willing to, to, you know, believe that the parents in this room really care for their, their children. And if one of your children was to fall into a pool, you would be more than willing to save them. Now, if your back's turned and you didn't know they had their floaty off, you wouldn't jump in the pool because you wouldn't know. But as soon as you knew, you would do something. Well, if God knows all things, then why doesn't he do good things? Right? Why doesn't he, he keep evil from happening? It's... it's it's a reasonable question. I suppose I could say that. But let's, I want to give you a thought about that. I've met people like that. Well, two things to keep in mind. First, we do not deserve being saved from drowning in a pool. We ought not to hold God as if he's not good. We deserve hell. You don't deserve the food that you're going to eat today, the food that you ate this morning. You don't deserve air conditioning in this building. You don't deserve comfortable clothes. You're like me. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, you you deserve fire. And so you have to start there. Who are you to say to God what is good? And I say that to you with love, but it is a rebuke. Change the way you think about God. He's not a man to put on, a, on the seat of judgment. The second thing I'll say, and this is helpful too, is we don't understand the full picture 
Why, God? You know all things. You know where I'm at. And this happened to me. Why? Well, friends, we don't understand the full picture. We don't understand everything that's going on around us. My children, you know, especially the young ones, the little ones, will be doing something fun. We'll be with Papi and Nani or we'll be at the pool or something. And they don't want to leave. Daddy, why we got to go? Because we got to go. I'm not going to sit here and explain everything to you. I'm exhausted. You're about to turn into a pumpkin. The people have told us to leave. You know, Poppy doesn't want us to stay anymore. Y'all are hungry. I mean, you just keep going, right? I got to work tomorrow morning, you know. They don't understand. And they're devastated. We're leaving. I don't want to. Can we, can we stay? Like, just keep staying? Like, they're you know, little kids. They don't understand. And we're like that. We don't know what God's doing. Friends, Genesis 50, verse 20. I'm going to read this verse to you. I trust you have the context of it. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. What am I talking about? It's Joseph. It's Joseph. What happened to Joseph? He was sold into slavery to the Midianites by his brothers. He was in jail. He was in a cellar. I think it was two years. He didn't do anything wrong. All these bad things happened to him. Why? He couldn't see what God was doing. And that's another way of thinking about this objection. God, I believe your Bible says that you know all things, but I'm struggling with it practically. We don't understand the full picture. We come now to application. I hope you believe that God knows all things. And this has four uses for us. Speaking in old terms, okay, application. Four uses. The first use of this doctrine is for comfort. For comfort. Psalm 103, 13 through 14. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. He knows your limits as a mother caring for children. He he, he doesn't um, forget to give us greater grace for when we're in a trial and we're persecuted. We're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and he doesn't forget to be near us. Sometimes you can, you can be anxious. You can be very de- maybe depressed because you feel like you've entered into to, to like a cavern, as it were, of life, and God's not there, and you're in despair. God knows what you're going through. He knows everything about your life. 
Christ is on the mount praying. His, his disciples are in the boat. Um, the, the, the account in John, verse 19 of chapter 6, says that they're three or four miles into the sea. There's a storm. It's cloudy. It's dark. And yet he's on the mount praying. And the text in Mark says something interesting. He saw them. But friends, you have to understand what's going on. It's dark. It's a storm. They don't have uh, lights. They're shining with their battery-powered you know, lights. He saw them because he knows that they're going through a storm. And this is, this is for your comfort. The, the connection between that analogy, or I'm sorry, the connection between the, the all... Um, omniscience of God, there's a connection between the omniscience of God and God's ability to act here. You mustn't think that God is unaware. Satan can throw darts at us, as it were. We We can become anxious. Stop. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. So the first use is for comfort. Secondly, the second use is for vindication. For vindication. And this is why we read Acts 6. It's an example of a man who was falsely accused. Verse 11, Then they suborned men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words, etc. Verse 3, And set up false witnesses which said, and then they stoned him. You know, he gave his defense, chapter 7. Right? At the end of that chapter, he's, he's stoned. It's, a, it's, a, it's an extreme example of injustice, of slander, of reproach, rebuke. Friends, have you ever been slandered? I'm not talking about the times when you have done something wrong. And maybe someone points it out appropriately, and you're upset about that. Or maybe they were just, in in their manner, inappropriate, but the content was true. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about slander. It's not true. I didn't say that to my boss. Mom and Dad, I, I didn't do anything to my sibling. They just hit me. The civil government accuses you of something. The news... Or the word of mouth, people just it gets out. Maybe even in the church, even even here. Hey, have you heard about those people over there? At work, at school, in the church, among family, among siblings, you know, your your first reaction to this is revenge. Romans twelve nineteen, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. Vengeance is mine saith the Lord. There's no recourse. You're slandered. You've lost your job, been demoted, whatever the case may be. Your name has been drugged through the mud. Friends, God knows. God knows. He knows what you actually did. He knows what you actually said. 
God knows. This is also connected to the idea of rewards in heaven. Not so much vindication, but kind of. There may be women. The, the unsung heroes of the church are women. Okay? Um, if a woman, most, most women, you know, they get married if they can. They have children if they can. You know, that's, that's a normal thing, right? And they're the unsung heroes. You know, other churches look at our churches and they say, you don't have any women elders. You don't have any women officers. What do your women do in the church? Our women do all kinds of things in the church. <laughs> they're fantastic. And they're not in the pulpit, in the limelight, but in heaven. How many women, married or unmarried, will have more rewards than a, even a faithful minister? God knows your works. And Jesus says this to the church in Revelation. I know your works. Keep going. We don't do it for recognition. But there's a place for it. Even, even God, we're not Roman Catholics, right? It's not, it's not like we're going to be rewarded with heaven for our good works. But there will be rewards in heaven. That's something to think about. You're laboring in the mission field, perhaps. Or just some other place. You know, God knows your, your works. He remembers them. There's a book of remembrance. And that should encourage you, friends. Third, third application, there's four. Third application. For conviction. For conviction. Conviction of sin. When I was a young boy... My, kid, my family, we would go to my grandparents and we would spend a little time with them um, different times of the week. We were close to them and they always had a cookie jar of, of sugar cookies. It was a clear jar. You could see the sugar cookies in there. And they always gave us lemonade. So we'd go there and all the, I was one of you know, a bunch of kids and so we're, you know, we're all kind of running around. And, and I remember there was a time when, when I, you know, everyone's outside and there's no one in the kitchen. And I'm a little boy. And I, I can see the sugar cookies in the cookie jar. And I look around. And I go. And I put my hand in the cookie jar. I grab the sugar cookie. Sam! And I'm convicted. I was already guilty. God already knew. And yet because someone else knew, I was convicted. Maybe there's someone here in a secret sin. Your parents don't know where you were at 11 o'clock last Friday night. Well, they thought you were over here, but you were actually over here. You weren't caught. God knows. Men, you deleted your history. And the internet, God knows. You're on a trip. You're in a hotel. No one's there. God knows. You're in your bedroom. No one's there. God knows. 
Hebrews 4.13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This passage of Scripture brings up the omniscience of God that makes an application to judgment, to accountability. All things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him who will save us from our sins. Well, yes, you know, God saves his people from their sins, but it says with whom we have to do, to whom we must give an account. Psalm 90, verse 8. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. Think about your life. What sins, what things does your pastor not know about you that he should know? About you. Now, there are private sins that can be confessed privately and they don't need to be known by everyone. I understand that. What, what do your parents not know? They ought to know. God knows. What about your spouse? Two other thoughts about this under conviction that I want to elaborate just a wee bit, wee bit more. Two, two, other, two other things here. Consider a very good sign of genuine repentance is when someone confesses a sin to appropriate parties without being caught while still being under undercover. So this is your 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 loving exhortation. This this God is coming to you in this sermon, and He is telling you. Confess your sins. Some, some of you just need to confess your sin privately. And those are the less serious ones. Other sins, you need to go to your parents. You need to go to your spouse. You need to go to your elders. Today, say, I have sinned, and I need help. I need accountability. God knows I'm already guilty of it. I'm coming for forgiveness. I'm coming for reconciliation. I've sensed in my life the Spirit of God has, has diminished. It's no longer a bright light in my heart. It's a wee candle. The second thing I've, I've already mentioned a bit, but just to clarify pastorally, again, I'm, I'm not your preacher. And I want you to understand what I'm saying most of the time, but not all the time, our sins need to be confessed to others. So right now, there's a sin, perhaps, in your life that you haven't confessed. Some of it is private. Some of it, perhaps, especially the scandalous things, the serious things. You need, you need to let someone know. You need to confess it to someone else. Um, you, you need to help. You need help. Well, the fourth application is the last application and the most important application. And this is when we come back a little bit more to, to the text of Psalm 139, 
verse 6, I believe you could logically um, put underneath, these last three applications kind of fall underneath this one. This one's the great one. And the fourth application, the fourth use of the fact that God is all-knowing, it's very useful for worship. For worship. Again, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Oh God, you're God, and I'm not. I'm low. You are very high. Oh, the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. I'm talking about the O part there. Paul looks at the plan of God, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God and redemption. And he says, oh. And I believe the best way for us to lower ourselves and, and, to, and to worship God is to think about more deeply the differences between our knowledge and God's knowledge. And, God's knowledge. and I want to give you five differences. And this is by way of application. Because if you're a Christian here, you're praising the Lord. But I want you to be in awe of Him as the psalmist. First, God's knowledge is independent. It's independent. God's intellect is the source and spring of the intellect of all intelligent beings. This coming week, early tomorrow morning, I'm going to go to Atlanta, and I'm going to fly in a plane to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I'm going to sit for a whole week under the tutelage of a classicist. He knows Greek and Latin. He's actually a minister in your denomination. He's a good man. He knows a lot. And I'm going to drink, as it were, from his cup. He's going to feed me. I need someone to tell me what is true. God is the source of knowledge. He's created it. Psalm 36, 9. For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. Colossians 2.3, referring to Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What does that mean? It, it actually means quite a lot, but one of the things it's pointing at is just that, that they're there. All, all, the, um, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ because he's God. Romans 11, 34 and 35. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, and who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? God doesn't go to a library and look at a book. He doesn't look at, look at Google. He is the source of all knowledge. Secondly, his knowledge is not only independent, but it is without error. Um, sometimes I'll quote scripture from the pulpit. And I suppose if, I, if I've really lost the sense, I, I'll, I'll, I will go to the text. But sometimes I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit. We have actually examples of that in the Bible. Sometimes Paul will quote the Old Testament. It's not intended to be an exact 
copy. You know, it's, it's, it gives the sense, and it's, and it's okay. Uh, I hope you understand that. The Bible is infallible, but um, my point is that, you know, you might, you might think back on your wedding day, or maybe, uh, you know, just an important, uh, maybe a funeral. Someone you love died. And you can remember that day. Uh, but there's some things I've kind of forgotten. can't remember. You know, I'm not trying to make a joke about it, but my wife remembers things that I don't. Even though I, re- I, I love her and I, you know, I, I remember our first date. I don't remember what I was wearing. She does. You know, my knowledge, my memory, <laughs> my memory has some missing parts to it. God's knowledge is without error. Third, this is interesting. I want you to think about this. God's knowledge is instant. Uh, the theological word is simple. Uh, that that kind of leaves us a little bit. In other words, it doesn't have parts, and there's not groups where he's having to kind of, as it were, God has to go through it and discover it or something. It's just all there. It's all there. For example, maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon, or, or think of like Lookout Mountain or some place where you've seen, oh, wow, you know, Look at all, I'm on the top of a building, I can see all these things. It, it takes you a while to, to see it. You walk up to the edge of Grand Canyon, you're like, whoa, there's the Colorado River, and there's the other side of the canyon over there, and here's all these ridge lines, and you're just there looking. And it takes you time to process it with God. He, it's all instant. A doctor takes four years to learn how to be a surgeon or whatever. God just knows all those things. You read a book two or three times because you really want to know the material. You, you know it, but you really want to know it. God doesn't have to read a book. It's all there. You know, a computer, a computer has, um, has like long-term memory and then like usable memory. With God, it's all usable. It's all there. All things are naked and open to him. That's part of what it means. It's all there. It's all manifest. Fifth, I'm sorry, fourth. Mentioned it before, but this, this just blesses us, comforts us, it encourages us, and we ought to be in awe of it. Um, going back to the weather, an illustration, the hurricane on Florida. You know, think about it this way. Um, uh, and, and my background is military, but, I, you know, I, I appreciate this. You know, a general knows his troops. He knows his troops, he knows how he should deploy him. Well, this unit would be good for that. And this general, this sub, you know, this sub leader will be good for that. And he knows his troops, but he doesn't know the condition of every single one of his soldiers. God's knowledge is not just general, it's particular. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You're of more value than many sparrows. O Lord, thou hast searched the church of covenant. And you're aware of the situation going on? No. O Lord, thou hast searched me. Even as a, even as a father, you know, I don't know everything that's going on in my kids. I, I have a good idea what's going on in my family. By God's grace, the Lord's blessing us. He knows every, every detail. There's no genius species with, with God. Everything is just details, particular. And lastly, by way of worship, 
I want to I want to mention this to you. God knows the future. He knows the future. No one knows the future but God. He knows when he's coming back. He knows the end of the devil. He he knows when you'll die. We talked about that last week. He knows what's going to happen in this congregation. He he knows who your next elder will be. He knows who your next minister will be. He knows whether you're going to have a child or not. He knows everything. And here's the other thing. God knows all future contingencies. This is where we ought to just really, you know, for example, David goes to Keilah. He, he saves those people in that city, 1 Samuel 23, from the Philistines. And he's there. And he's wondering if he's safe there. So he prays. He says, God, will the people of this city deliver me up to Saul? And God says to him, they will. Think about that for a second. So David leaves, and they don't. It was a future contingency. Yes. What would have happened to you if you would have joined the military when you were 18? God knows. You know, I, I, uh, this past weekend, we were, I was talking to my wife. Her mother's grandmother knew Henry Ford in Michigan, and, uh, or her husband. Anyways, descendants are our ancestors. And he was offered, like, hey, come, in, come into the business with the Ford company. And we were like, oh, we would have been millionaires. You know, we would have been inherited all this money. God knows. I mean, for the sake of worship, God knows all those things. I I lose my mind when I think about that. He knows everything. And we ought to say, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. We ought to go low. You ought to confess your sins to God. You ought to have great peace and comfort. Faithful Christian, serving the Lord. God knows. He knows. Go low and worship. Say in your heart, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His understanding is infinite. Amen.